we work so hard to be mindful and to be conscious and to be safe and to make smart decisions and to be protective, maybe more, more than we needed to at times. And none of that kept him from dying, you know? And that was a really important lesson for me, huge. Welcome to Impact the World, everybody. This is a very special episode where we are in studio and my guest is someone that I've been looking forward to having this conversation with for quite a while. Dr. Laura Berman is the author of nine books and has appeared on numerous television shows, including The Oprah Winfrey Show, and had her own show as a sex, love, and relationship therapist called In the Bedroom on the OWN Network. Today in our conversation, we speak about Dr. Laura's relationship to sex as a child and how that moved her into this work as a field, how we as a society uh, interact with or pull away from the whole conversation or topic of sex. And we also speak about the loss of her son. In early 2021, she lost her son to a fatal drug uh, poisoning. So stay tuned for the full episode. It's a heartfelt one and I think you'll really enjoy Dr. Laura's courageous spirit as much as I did. Laura, thank you so much for being here. And this is our third time lucky <laughs> with trying to schedule this, but it's, it's lovely to be with you in person. You too, I'm so glad. One or the other of us, something was always happening. Know, so I'm so glad we're here, yeah, we did it. Yeah, well today I'd love to talk to you about your work and how you got into it and, and, and what it has done for you as a person, but before we, go into the topic of your work. I know that you are a love relationship and sex therapist, mm -hmm. but you know, coming today, I was, I was thinking driving here, I was like, wow, sex is such a taboo topic. And as, as a young person, I and a couple of my friends would always be the ones who wanted to talk about <laughs> sex and often would be the ones who either made other people uncomfortable mm -hmm. or noticed if we were talking about it, people would kind of be intrigued, but taboo. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is a big, broad question, but given you're someone who's worked in this field for so long, what is it from your perspective that scares us so much about openly just talking about the act of sex or lovemaking? Yeah, it's so insidious, isn't it? And, and, you know, I've been doing this kind of work for, gosh, close to 30 years, and there's definitely been an evolution. Um, ebbs and flows based on what's happening societally even, but I think a lot of it has to do with just our, at least in, in the Western world, you know, the, the puritanical background. And in fact, America is so much worse than Europe. It's true. But we love to watch sex. We love to see sex in movies. We love sex in, you know, we love sex, but we are also very scared of it and we are ashamed of it. There's like an inherent shame um, and and, you know, like it's wrong, bad, dirty, even though we know it's not, there's like this subconscious in our generational and cellular memory, not to mention in many of our families growing up, our parents didn't even necessarily have to verbally give us the message in a million different ways that sex is wrong, bad, or dirty, just by not ever speaking about mm. it. <laughs> you know, yeah. that gives a very clear message, right? Yeah having your hand slapped away when you were three years old and trying to soothe yourself to sleep, you know, playing with yourself like right. kids do. Like there are all of these insidious messages spoken and unspoken that teach us that it's not a, a beautiful, 
miraculous, fundamental, and natural part of health, health and well-being. It's just not something that the culture teaches us or that most of us learn in our families growing mm. up. I've, I've had a few good friends um, who have gone into things like Tantra teaching, mm -hmm. and, and you know we've had conversations about it. And one of the things that it took me a long time to figure out, I was probably in my 20s when this really clicked, I'm like, wow, we judge, fear, and reject the very gateway through which we came. Now, our existence. Sure, yeah. in our modern times, there are different ways that, that babies are coming into the world, I guess. But for most of us, certainly in our generation, this is how we came in. Yeah. And, and as somebody who I think like many people had a huge history with self-rejection mm -hmm. and also because my sexuality was not heterosexual, mm -hmm. which was its own kind of issue mm -hmm. when I was a kid, mm -hmm. um, I thought, wow, this self-rejection starts with us rejecting the very act through which we came in. Which is so crazy. And even with in vitro and all these other things that where babies can be made from sex, I mean, without sex, they still wouldn't exist. Yep. Because the parents were made for sex, yes. you know. So all of us, I saw. I joke. I have a, you know, we. I joke with my friends sometimes. We'll be in, you know, chock-a-block traffic, and I'll be look around. Every one of these people exist because someone got laid. You know, <laughs> like that's pretty amazing. So as a kid, were you already naturally curious, or, or, or did you have a lot of restriction against you? No, which, the no? opposite. Um, I think, you know, it, for good and for bad, and I've had to work that through, and it's, been, it's informed my life and my healing and a lot of my work. But, um, you know, I, I had a, not, a, you know, what sexual trauma and the way most people think about it, but I was raised from a very early age, by, specifically by my father. Both my parents were really comfortable with sex. It was it was natural, it was normal, it was talked about like the weather, it was joked about. It was not something we were supposed to do. You know, my dad even said to me that don't buy the cow, they won't buy the cow if they can get the milk for free. He literally said that to me mm. at one point, you know, that horrible statement that many women have heard. But he also raised me from a very early age to be a seductress. Like mm. he would leave Cosmo, Cosmo magazine articles on how to give a blowjob, like in my on my bed when I was 13 or 14 years old. Not yeah. because he wanted me to go out and give a blowjob, but he wanted me to know how to give one. Like so that, you know, there were lots of things like that that were very messed up. And I was very, because in his mind, and it was only, it was never verbally said, but women's value was primarily physical and sexual. And Which in his generation and back then, it wasn't untrue mm -hmm. in terms of how society f forced women down that path, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. And so to him, he was, I mean, even up to the end of his life, I remember when he was really sick and, and not far from death and I had moved down there with my husband and my kids. My husband was commuting back and forth from Chicago at the time, um, but I moved down there for the summer. And I remember we were out to dinner and my husband was coming in that night and he was like, okay, so, you know, you're going to be ready for it. Like he wanted to make sure that I was going to sexually attend to wow. my husband. And here he is like in his eighties, wow. you know, coming wow. around the curve, but he wanted to make sure that I was going to deliver sexually. Wowzers. And were you doing the work that you do now then? Oh yeah. I, yeah. I mean, right. I've been doing this since, uh, I, the reason I got into it really, besides the comfort and the fact that I didn't realize so much later how unusual that was. 
to be able to talk about it so because I can talk about it very comfortably, yeah. always could, and people, my friends always came to me for advice, but he had a lot of affairs and, mm. and put me front and center in the middle of them, confided in me, both, you know, I was my parents' therapist from the time I could talk. And um, I remember, and I shared this with him at the end of his life, I thanked him. Um, it was not very close to his death and we were having a really beautiful conversation. And I said, you know, I wanna thank you because there was this moment when I was 18 years old and you were having this horrible public affair in our small town. You know, you've always said that you're the reason I became a sex therapist, but it's not for the reason you think. <laughs> the reason is because when I was 18 and you wouldn't stop cheating with this woman and my mom was like, crawling on the floor devastated and I was in the middle of it out of desperation I came to you and I said if you don't stop sleeping with this woman because he kept you know as usual he kept saying he would stop and then he started I said if you don't stop sleeping with this woman I'm never going to speak to you again and you chose to keep sleeping with that woman and in that moment I was devastated because my father chose sex over me but also I needed to understand why, like what could make sex so powerful that you would sacrifice everything for it and mm. lose me and lose our family and walk, you know, like he didn't end up doing that. But at the time, and it wasn't because of me that he didn't, but he eventually left that relationship. And I don't think he ever had another affair after that. But I spent, you know, I, I said it took me down the most dysfunctional paths with the most dysfunctional men. But if I hadn't done that, need I needed, I started studying it in college. Like I needed to understand what is it that drives us? Why is sex so powerful? That's what the question was that I started with. And then that's what led, I said, if it weren't for that, I wouldn't have studied sexuality. I would have probably just been a general couples therapist, most of whom don't even touch sex, which mm. is crazy to me. And I wouldn't have had the life I have. I wouldn't have been able to help the thousands of people that I've helped. I probably wouldn't have had my oldest son from my ex-husband who was a complete cheating cuckoo bird because mm. I was trying to work that through. You know, there were so many gifts and one of them was uh, that I became a sex therapist mm. in addition to a couples therapist. So beautiful. So you went and studied. Mm -hmm. And how long? How long? How long was it before you were practicing? Um, well, practicing wasn't until I did my clinical training. I did. I had. I did two masters and a PhD at NYU, mm. um, and it was a master's in sex uh, therapy, basically. Uh, oh, I also did a fellowship in sex therapy. Um, I did uh, a master's in clinical social work and a PhD in health education and therapy focusing on sex, love and relationships. And um, I, you know, so I started when I was in training under supervision um, and I started just as a general therapist. But of course, all of these couples, you know, when you're doing your supervised clinical training, you meet with the clients and I was doing a couple's field placement in my graduate training. And then I would go to my supervisor and discuss what the couple brought up and they'd guide you and tell you what to do next session or troubleshoot with you what happened during that session. And all these couples were bringing up their sexual issues to me. And I would go back to my supervisor, you know, thinking 
that's just what happened in couples therapy. And she would look at me like I was some sort of pervert. <laughs> and like, what are you saying to these couples? And most of the time I wasn't even saying anything to them. They just sensed that I was open or when they mentioned something, I would ask a follow-up question. And it suddenly, and I couldn't get anyone, any of my professors except one, uh, none of my supervisors had anything to share about, they didn't address, like it was insane to me that a couple's therapy wouldn't address, that wouldn't address sex. Like that in and of itself is a sim symptom of our repression, right? Yes. And so that's what I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation on, the variables that predict for a clinician's willingness to address sexual issues, because it's still astounding to me how many couples therapists do not talk about, address it, even if the couple comes to them because they haven't had sex in X number of time, months or years, or there's some sexual issue and that's the presenting problem, they still don't address it, hmm. which is crazy to me. Well, what's so interesting to me about what you're saying is, uh, as I, I know for me, one of the things I would always experience was people would tell me their deepest secrets, their <laughs> biggest emotions, their the yeah. feelings that they, and they would always say, oh, I've never told anyone no. else this. And I think I've met other intuitives, healers, uh, people who have their psychic gift open who say the same thing. So for you, it was in your field. Yeah. Here is the sex therapist. She may not have that. <laughs> she may not have that sign Moniker, above her head, yeah. but here is. She may a... not even know she is one no, yet, but here she though. is. Yeah. Well, it's funny because even this conversation that we're having, so we're on our, I don't know, 160th episode of this show right now. I don't think we have ever, I don't think we've ever had anybody on whose work brings sex into the equation. And even just in the minutes that we've been talking, some of the terms that you have used, which are quite normal, like blowjob and all, all the kind of things that you peppered in. <laughs> I know. Are the you cringing? The no, I'm not cringing, but because I vibrationally feel yeah, the yeah. ripple in the yeah, audience, yeah, yeah. I can tell there will be some <laughs> people right now going, oh, you know, and yeah. not necessarily in a bad way. Yeah. It's not even that they're pulling away from yes. the conversation, but it's more, we're not used to it. No. We are not used, to it, and, and we are trained to slightly recoil from some of those terms or yes, some of those because we're not used topics. to hearing them in the regular yeah. vernacular. Yeah. I mean, not that we all go around saying blowjob. I mean, I could have been more professional and said fellatio, but we're casual in this fine. conversation. Well, I think one of the things that I know from you and knowing the bit about your story that I do is that you had your own spiritual awakening. Mm -hmm. And I know for me, you know, like probably many people, my early interest in sex was very desire-based, uh, connection-based, pleasure-based. And then as I also went through my own spiritual awakening, mm -hmm. I had literal experiences where it was like, oh, this is a deeply kundalini, powerful, yes. very broadly connected experience that, I, that I'd never previously known. And it certainly wasn't anything I had seen in, say, the pornography no, that I had seen no. in my teens or... Wouldn't that be great if they had porn that showed like... They probably yeah. do. Yeah. I don't know. They probably do. Maybe... Well, there's a market yeah. for that. If you're watching... <laughs> I, um, yeah. I won't be me, but feel <laughs> free. No, no, no. <laughs> but, but I think I'm curious for you yeah. as someone who had been studying and mm -hmm. holding space for people's mm -hmm. relationship to sexuality all that time. What was it that changed for you when when you went through a spiritual awakening? Mm -hmm. 
Did it just connect a series of dots? Did it change the way you work with people? Absolutely. I mean, my with all of us, if you work in a field, it evol- it's always evolving, yes. right? As we evolve, as we grow, it's evolving. So as it, the it, world grows, yeah, yeah, you know, and as you practice, you're as a human being. I mean, my work has always been informed by my own journey. But yeah, I mean, I almost call it a spiritual reawakening because I definitely was awakened as a little girl, but it got kind of shamed and mm-hmm. humiliated and scared out of me. So I shut it down um, and then had this kind of reawakening um, in my early 40s. Um, yeah, it was my early 40s. And absolutely, um, my approach to the work I was doing in all areas, not just sex, but certainly sex as well, became much more uh, spiritually informed and much more intuitively informed because as you know, and you and I have talked about this, you know, you're a master channel, but we're all channels, right? Totally. And, and so as I awakened, those channels started, for me, started opening not in the way that you channel, but just with my intuition so even in the work that i would do with couples or individuals instead of focusing more on the practicalities i found myself seeing what i eventually started had a name for which was their point of fracture like the Mm -hmm. point at which they adopted these self-defeating beliefs the point at which they decided they weren't worthy of love the point at which they adopted and internalized shame about who they were sexually but like i could see that moment and reflect it back to them. And it was really cool because it would kind of hypersonic speed the clinical work, because instead of doing all the spelunking and digging and trying to understand, I would like automatically know, (laughs) which was really has been a great, makes me work hard and fast um, and is really fun. But also absolutely from a sexual standpoint, I mean, it's a joke with like people on my team or um, because you know, sex sells, right? And they're always saying, yeah, you know, this person and that person is doing these YouTube videos about, you know, four ways to, I'm going to say blowjob again, four ways to give a blowjob. And And it will get you views. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, you know, that doesn't excite me anymore. I'm not, I mean, I could do that. I could do that with my, you know, not even thinking about it, but that's not, what inspires me or excites me. And so I don't want to, you know, that's not who I, who, what my work is about in the world. It's really about um, quantum sex. You know, it's really about helping people release the trauma, release the shame, release the limiting beliefs, um, attune with their body's energy, heal their relationships. You know, there's all of those practical things in the logistical field that is a lot of what sex and relationship therapy is, how to fight well, how to get your needs met, how to understand your body, how to understand each other's bodies. You know, there's practical things, but it's definitely woven in and around these more metaphysical things for sure. And you have one of your nine books is called Quantum Love. Mm-hmm. And you you said the most popular chapter in that book is Quantum Sex. Yes. And in fact, you're even working on a, a book with that title right now. I am. Which is that's that's going to do well, <laughs> I and I think you, you know why I think that's going to do well, um, because to me there is some energetic balance between the words quantum and sex. Mm-hmm. It's not that there isn't a balance in quantum love, but quantum love, the love kind of tails 
I don't know. There's just a, there's That's something there's, there's like an interesting synergy between those two words yes. that creates a reaction for me when I hear that title. So yeah, put me down for a copy I of that, will. please. I will. I will. I want to ask you a, a slightly tangent question because I know that at a certain point your work and your popularity grew. And you were then appearing on the Oprah Winfrey show and Dr. Oz and lots of TV shows. And you you had your own show called In the Bedroom on the Oprah Winfrey Network. How did you experience kind of being pushed out there in that way into a much bigger psychic and human field mm -hmm. of vision and exposure? Because I think it's something that I know I definitely wrestled with every time my work's grown a bit. And when I work with entrepreneurs, the biggest fear is, I don't know about this because mm. I don't know how I feel about being exposed in an area that's still either taboo, if it's healing or channeling, and how the public will react. Yeah. Did you, how did you navigate that success exposure period that you went through and were there yeah. negatives and positives to it? Um, I think there were negatives and positives, but there are two fundamental things that I think prepared me for it. One is that I have been and always was a ham. Like right. put me in front of camera <laughs> and I will talk for six hours and we'll never stop talking if you want me to. You know, right. like Perfect. I have always loved, you know, I'm not a performer, but I'm sort of a performer, you know, you're by name. Well, you're, 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 you're not a performer that becomes someone else, but yeah. you're able to bring performance energy yes. through who you are is how I experience you. Yes. Because you do have to amplify a bit. I do, and I love it. I mean, I love amplifying. Yeah. It let me amplify all day long, and I'm happy. <laughs> um, so that was in it. And also, um, I was really considered weird as a kid. Mm. You know, not only because I think I'm just a little weird in a good way, but also because I was growing up we moved to South, this little island on the southeast coast of Georgia, which was right on the Bible Belt. And I came in, moving it to, into that town. My parents had this whole steel magnolia fantasy. And we moved from New York City, this Jewish family from New York City, where like the first day of school, this girl came up to me and our, they already all knew that I, we were Jewish. And she said, they'd never met a Jewish person before. And she said, are you the new Jewish girl? And I was, I didn't even know being Jewish was a thing. And I said, yes. And she said, how come you don't have horns and a tail? Whoa. And I was not allowed to, girl, people weren't allowed to sleep over. Boys weren't allowed to ask me out. Like it was a big thing that I had pennies thrown at me, like a wow. big thing that I was Jewish. So I was always on the fringe and I was always like considered strange or unusual or weird. And I just embraced it. I became probably even weirder as a result. And I found my little group of friends who were also, you know, the, the sort of weirdos or unusual ones or whatever. Um, and so by the time I remember when I decided to, I'd gotten my clinical training and I decided to specialize in sex therapy. And one of my friends from college said, aren't you worried that like people are going to think you're some kind of freak? And I'm like, I'm used to being a freak. Like, I don't care. You know, I'm totally used to being weird. And that's, I, I kind of enjoy the freedom of that. Right. And so from that standpoint, I didn't care if people thought I was weird. You know, my husband jokes, we've been, we just had our 20th anniversary, but he jokes that, I, and I didn't mean this as a, a carrot. I meant it as like, do you know what you're getting into? But I said, you need to understand that like 
I am a lot about sex. I mean, I love and relationships is a huge part of what I do, but I talk about sex, I teach about sex, I think about sex, I'm experimenting with different ideas. You're gonna kind of be my guinea pig in some of this stuff. Like, you gotta be comfortable with this and ready for it. And he jokes that that's when he realized he was in love with me <laughs> when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. So, so by the time the Oprah thing rolled around and that huge public stage, I almost like, I was almost shocked when it ended. Like I almost mm. took it for granted. I mean, I loved it and I enjoyed mm. it and I was really relishing the ride, but it just sort of felt natural. And then it kind of came to a natural close right before I had my awakening when I you know, was diagnosed with breast cancer and had to completely stop my life. And right around the same time, the Oprah Winfrey show ended, mm. her radio, you know, her radio station, which I'd had a syndicated radio show, stopped creating any more content. So it all just kind of wound down. And then I ended up taking a year off to recover. And then that sort of, I went in a totally different direction from there. Mm. Mm. Well, I know how important family is to you and something you shared on Instagram uh, a couple months ago, I saw it and I asked you if, if, if you would ask your son permission mm -hmm. that we could run this clip. This is you speaking to your son, Ethan. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, many things about this video <laughs> I just found delightful. So we're gonna run about three minutes of the video now um, so that you watching and listening can hear it and then we'll talk about it. Ethan. Mm -hmm. um, I, you're the one, the only one that can answer this question. I can't, but mm -hmm. people often ask me, what is it like for your kids to have a sex and love relationship extravaganza like me for your mother? Um, I think it's, I can't really, I think it's different, but I don't know anything else. So I don't see it as such really it was it's all you've ever known yeah it was uncomfortable in middle school when people thought that sex therapists meant therapy through sex so they thought i was like a surrogate no they thought you were like a prostitute <laughs> um and that was difficult yeah and then in high school wait what did you do in that situation i got very angry i mean did you tell them no she's not yeah you yeah, knew but, i wasn't obviously. yeah no like i told them no she's not she does therapy on people who have she's sex. a talk therapist yeah, yeah, yeah. she talks but to people but they still would tease yeah. you about it yeah and like is after that, you'd explain that they'd be like no she has sex with people is that why you didn't like it when you wouldn't let me come to school and you'd get so mad at me when i showed up yeah probably yeah because then they if the, i showed up it would remind them to tease you yeah, it wasn't so it. much teasing me. Like, I didn't, I don't think I would have cared if you were a prostitute. <laughs> I just didn't like that they Aww. were judging you and being mean to you. Yeah, it's so sweet. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, I'm sorry about that part. And then also, was I too intrusive about, I feel like I talked no, to you appropriately. No, well, you were, you were too intrusive, I think, by most people's standards, but not by, <laughs> um... More intrusive, not too intrusive. Sure, more intrusive. But, you know, everything, it was helpful from a young age. It was helpful to understand at first and understand what was happening to me. Puberty was pretty smooth, I think, because of that. Oh. Um, at least the physical changes. The, yeah. the mood and, and the behavioral changes well, that, we dealt yeah. with. But um, the I'm, physical things were just like taking it in stride, knowing what was going to happen. Um, and then the... 
you know, the, the emotion, you know, just helping me understand that aspect of the world that isn't often talked about was helpful. Um, in high school, it was a little bit more of like a cool thing to say, you know, like people would find out and it was just a cool thing. People were a little bit less, you know, they were more immature. intrigued. Yeah. They were more intrigued. And then in college, it was just a huge help. You know, <laughs> I yeah. remember I sent you a huge care package. And that, yeah, you did. For your yeah. team, for your ultimate Frisbee team. Yeah, the team. women's, the women's Frisbee team yeah. uh, requested a package of, uh, her, of, of your uh, toys. Check them out. For, you know. <laughs> Check them they out. Liked them, the vibrated right? panties were a hit, guys. So <laughs> go check them out. Um, I've never used uh, your product. You I think, haven't? I think that would be quite uncomfortable for me. Why? Because it'd be like bringing you into the bedroom. Oh, yeah, that is a yeah. little weird. Yeah. <laughs> He's Ethan. adorable. He's so cute. And thank you, Ethan, for yeah. giving us permission to. Well, he'd already given you yeah, permission yeah. to put it oh, on Instagram. Fine. But I love that he says <laughs> that they thought you were a prostitute. <laughs> And um, it was funny when, when we were just re-watching the clip together now, it reminded me of the incredible show Sex Education on mm -hmm, Netflix, which mm -hmm. Stephen and I found a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's an amazing show. And it's the kind of show that would never have existed 10 or 20 no. years ago. Um, and in that, his mother is a sex therapist. And then he becomes a kind of school playground. Right. Uh, an um, armchair sex therapist. An armchair sex yes. therapist for all the, all the um, teens who mm -hmm. are kind of, you know, Find, finding their wings. So it's interesting, you know, what I loved about hearing from him, I mean, it's very funny when he says, you weren't, you weren't, you were intrusive by other people's <laughs> standards. But, you know, I think, wow, how interesting to have had a parent who is that comfortable mm -hmm. to be able to include that level of education and teaching in your upbringing, rather than just avoid it or hope that there's some lesson at school that will yeah. teach and educate you so um it's amazing so yeah they definitely had an ongoing conversation from a very early age and knew the correct names for body parts and whether they were heterosexual or not i was going to raise boys that knew where the clitoris was because if they weren't going to need that knowledge themselves they would know a woman or a yeah. man who needed that knowledge totally. and, you know i yeah they they're they've been very well in, and in fact i think have helped inform a lot of their friends. I did have a few mothers call me through the years saying, um, your child just told my child what sex is, right. you know, before they intended to tell them. Right. I mean, I didn't, we didn't have those discussions until they were like nine or 10, but it wasn't like they were eight or nine. You know, as soon as they started asking how babies were made, I started with like a really simple answer, but as they kept probing for more, I eventually you know, so they were probably like nine or 10 at that point. But in some mother's eyes, that was too young. But my response was, look, I'm sorry, but like at least your child has the correct answer, right, right. you know, like got the real facts. Yeah, <laughs> no, no stalks here. No. Um, and and did, did you, I'm sure you and perhaps even your kids to some degree would be the, the person that people would come to with, can I just ask you about this? I mean, always, yeah. always, still. Yeah. I mean, that's, talk about a scripted series. I, I have one in there. I'm going to do that at some point. Like all of the, there's so many comedic scenes from, you know, coming out of the bathroom on an airplane to, to see the flight attendant there with like, you know, blocking the aisle like they do for the pilot when the pilot's in the bathroom yeah. so that she could be like, listen, can I ask you a question? <laughs> 
you know, like I, I get stopped in the carpool line, right. you know, I get stopped every, everywhere. That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, I, to change conversation a little bit, I know that you have three sons mm -hmm. and I, you know, I also know that you tragically lost one of your sons in 2021. Mm -hmm. um, and I asked you before we did this conversation if you wouldn't mind speaking of about course. it and you shared that it's been really important for you to speak about it. So would you perhaps just share the story of what happened with Sam for yeah. us? Um, yeah, so Sammy was 16, uh, sheltering at home. And I just recently said to a girlfriend that one of the silver linings of the shutdown was that my two teenage boys, he was 16, his younger brother was 15, um, were stuck at home, you know, mm. couldn't get into any trouble. Um, I, since their only social life was social media. Because this was February 2021, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Since their only social life was social media, I, my deal with them was as long as you're doing well in school, I'm not going to be hypervigilant. I'm not going to bug you about getting off the computers. You know, he couldn't, they couldn't do anything. So Sammy could not, you know, he was on the football team. They couldn't practice. They couldn't play. They couldn't go to school. They couldn't be with their friends. Um, and he also, you know, was pretty, he was in, in his second year at a new school um, and he was pretty bullied there. Mm. Um, so it had been tough for him. So in many ways, the pandemic had been some respite. Um, but he somehow, which I had no idea at the time, um, that drug dealers reach out to our kids on social media. I always thought if you're going to connect with a drug deal, you got to know someone who knows one or you mm. got to meet one or, you know, uh, it just didn't even occur to me, dumb me, that they could find you on social media. And so a drug dealer, they reach out to kids, um, with these really colorful menus of that they will deliver to your door like a pizza. So, you know, one Percocet, $2, you know, like right. like a menu of all these different drugs. Um, and so someone reached out to him, sent him this menu. I only know that because he took a screenshot on Snapchat and sent it to his friend and said he was gonna order something. Um, he did, uh, it was delivered while we were sleeping. He, you know, just ran out of the house at, night and met the dealer who delivered it to the door. Um, and it was Super Bowl Sunday. It was February 7th. Um, he had asked me that morning to come up to his room later because he was getting ready to apply to colleges and he wanted he, the next fall and he wanted to uh, do an internship to kind of beef his college resume up. He was really excited. He wanted to go to NYU. He had a lot of plans. And so uh, I took my younger son on some errands and then came home and went upstairs. My youngest son, unfortunately, was ahead of me to go into his room ahead of me and just did a 360 and came running out and said, Sammy's on the floor. And I went in and he was non-responsive um, on the floor and the paramedics came and tried to revive him and weren't able to. And we discovered that he had taken something that he had gotten from this dealer um, that was pure fentanyl. I didn't even know what fentanyl was mm -mm. at this point. But fentanyl... Um, um, what is fentanyl? It's for? a synthetic opioid. It's um, basically, it's, it's um, about 30, 30 times more powerful than morphine mm. and three times more addictive than heroin. 
and it is made in China. And they stopped several years ago, they stopped the import of fentanyl into the United States, but they imported into Mexico where the cartels create counterfeit drugs that are either pure fentanyl or laced with fentanyl. They're not very systemic about it, obviously. But the reason they do that is because it's unbelievably cheap, it's easy to produce, and if it kills you, they don't care. But if it doesn't kill you, it makes you into an amazing customer because you're a hardcore addict. Mm. So they put it in everything, everything that you can think of that you can get from a dealer, including cannabis, they put fentanyl in. Um, and he took something that turns out to have been from his tox report when we eventually got back, pure fentanyl. Um, and so if he had survived, which was unlikely because it stops your heart, it's, um, you know, there's even something called, which he was in, called the fentanyl death pose because you pass out, fall on your back and stop breathing um, and then throw up and choke on your own vomit. Um, and that's what happened to him. So, so the, if he had lived, he would have been a, like a heroin addict times three. He would have mm -hmm. been fighting addiction for the rest of his life. Um, and it has been astounding. It's the number one killer now of, of people over the, between you know, 18 and 45. And it is coming into this country in droves. And I am just hearing from thousands of parents all, like I, I ended up having to create a Facebook support group because there was just this onslaught when I was public about what happened, and I'm still hearing from them constantly, every day, hundreds of parents uh, losing their children to fentanyl poisoning. Because when we were growing up, everybody experimented. You, I yeah. mean, not good kids do stupid things, and you weren't gonna necessarily, you know, unless you intentionally tried to, you weren't gonna, they don't, I don't even call it an overdose. It's not an overdose. Mm -hmm. It's fentanyl poisoning is what it is. It's yeah. murder. Yeah. Um, but I had to create a support group, which I now think has something like 15,000 parents on there with the same story. Hmm. It's just heartbreaking. And you chose to go public about it mm -hmm. fairly quickly, um, but you, you've talked about how impactful it was both for you and your husband and your family to do that, yeah. but also what a magnet you then became for all of these people and all of these yeah. stories. I didn't really, it was so bizarre because he was, I was still waiting for the coroner. I didn't know what had happened. I got in touch with his friend who sent me this menu and said he must have taken, you know, he told me he was gonna get something from this guy. And it had the guy's Snapchat handle on the menu. And so I go running to the police who were still in my house and said, here, here's what happened. You can catch him. And they said, we're really sorry. Snapchat won't give us any information. They cite privacy laws. We don't even bother asking them anymore. And if we do tell them, they'll just take down the profile and that person will, like whack-a-mole, will just pop up somewhere else. We don't want them to take down the, the profile because we want to try to find this guy. And I remember saying to them, well, let me order drugs right now. You stay here. And I wish I had, but of course I was not of <laughs> sound, you know, I was, mm beside myself and they said, no, 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 you can't do that. Um, but yeah, it was, um, so, so it's something that, that infuriated me because I was like, how can this be that you have this person's handle and Snapchat could give you 
his credit card number, his address, like everything, you know, his information could give it to you. And they're not going to do it. And so this like wave of, I was already beside myself, as you can imagine, but I started flipping out. And then my husband, who I guess knows me better than I know myself, said, you, you're going to feel, you just warn your follower, like go on social media and warn people that's going to, because I was like, how could this be? Like I was beside mm-hmm. myself. And so I just did that. I don't even remember writing the post. I just said, this is what happened. Watch your kids. He found this on Snapchat. Snap, you know, I had no idea this could happen. But I can't you wanted breathe. wanted to warn other parents yeah. of what, what, what the potentials were. Yeah, I just couldn't believe it. And then, I, and then that was it. And I didn't think anything of it. I was just in traumatized grief. And then the next day, the phone started ringing off the hook with different television shows that wanted to talk to me. And I said to my husband, I'm not going on TV. Like, I can't even talk. I, mean, I, I can't I can't say a sentence without crying. And he said, who cares? You know, you want to help people like just so then cry. And I like and it was hard. And I gave myself a week to do it. I went on name the show. I went on it. Um, they were just calling me and I would just kept saying yes for one week. And I didn't do my hair or makeup, nothing. I just told the story. And each time I just said to myself, if I can save one kid mm. from dying, it's worth doing. And, um, and then at the end of that week, I said, okay, that's it, no more. And I went off into the Redwoods. I can't believe I did this, but I left my husband and my, I just, I knew this was really, uh, in, will be interesting for you. I knew that I was gonna die if I did not mm. stop my life, get out of there, and go all the way into the pain, mm. like fully and completely. Um, and I didn't, and I was shocked because it felt like my life was over and I didn't even know I still wanted to live. But realizing that, I also realized I really want to live. I realized in such a visceral way, not just in an intellectual way, that most of us realize what if miracle it is that any of us exist that any second anything can happen and I want to be here that I was given this gift of life and I want to be here not only for my kids and my husband but like for myself and for the gift that I've been given and so bless his heart because I know he really needed me I went to my husband and I said I'm leaving for a week I'm going to be out of touch I'm going to go into the redwoods my one of my dearest friends who's like one of a master at holding space you know came with me she was my grief concierge and i just i did body work i did breath work i did i was sitting in the mother tree for hours a day i was wailing i was um i went deep and it really i think is one of the keys to my survival and i decided at that point um and now i think i'm finally ready to start actually putting it into action that I'm going to raise the money to take grieving mothers into the woods Mm. and do the same thing. Because what I kept thinking during that time is how unbelievably lucky I was that I could do this Mm. and give myself this healing, life-saving gift. Um, And that most people, 
I mean, I couldn't have afforded it myself. It was 1440 Multiversity right. reached out to me and said, we're closed for the pandemic, but if you wanna come, we'll give you one of our houses and Amazing. we'll let you use the property. And my friends who are healers said, we'll help you, you know? But um, it's expensive and it's hard to leave your life, you yeah. know? And so I decided then that I was gonna raise the money to help other mothers and fathers, but especially there's something about mothers, maybe because I am one that really speaks to yeah. me that I wanna help. Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm just curious to ask about your husband mm -hmm. and your sons, because you know, traditionally, I mean, I, I kind of had a bit of a past because growing up knowing I was gay, I mm -hmm. didn't identify with male programming as much, but I was still kind of guided into it. We are guided away from our feelings. Mm -hmm. We are guided out of our feelings. We are, whereas, all my female friends and family members, you not only have an intrinsic uh, relationship with your feelings, but you are allowed to explore yeah, them. Yeah, we have so permission. How did, how did your husband and sons get through this process? Um, they've all done it really differently, and that's been a real education as well. And um, David Kessler, who's one of kind of the leading grief experts in the world, um, connected with me afterwards through some of our old Oprah connections and became a real guiding light and a, and a dear friend. And he said to me very early, he coached me through it because, you know, my husband and my sons, my two sons handled it very, very differently. My oldest, as you can see, is very emotionally attuned and very honest and, um, he was very, you know, he really was dealing with a, honestly a lot of guilt. Um, I think survivor's guilt, but also guilt that he should have been nicer to Sammy when he was little and he should have mm -hmm. spent more time with him and all those woulda, coulda, shouldas. My youngest, who was prone to sort of anxiety, started just shutting down. Um, and, you know, I put him into intensive therapy, somatic experiencing therapy and talk therapy. Um, so he had a lot of support, but he doesn't like talking about it. He does not like talking about his feelings. He doesn't like going there. My husband is very private. Like for me, talking about Sammy um, helps. I like to talk about him. I like to look at his pictures. I like to have them around. My husband does not. However, I have zero interest in fighting Snapchat and pushing laws and changing. Like that drains me and infuriates mm. me but he has found such healing and help there. So he has become this amazing advocate and has all these other, this whole parent group that he facilitates and they do media and we're, they're about to actually bring to, we have bipartisan support for what's become Sammy's Law, wow. which is gonna require that every social media platform that has children on it allows parental monitoring software. And so he has found tr a lot of peace and healing and meaning in, in doing that, which is like the opposite of what mm. feeds me. And I learned very early, because I wanted to make his way wrong, <laughs> yeah. but I learned early not to. And we all, everybody grieves so differently, including in the same family. And I know that he, cries a lot, cried a lot and cries a lot in private, in the shower, off by himself. But he also is totally fine with my crazy grief. You know, mm -hmm. he'll come into the garage and I've been sitting in the car 
screaming and bawling. And he's like, what's up? And I'm like, I'm just crying. He's like, okay, can I do anything? You know, he doesn't, Yeah. He, he can hold mine, yeah. you know, and he comforts me and he can be with me, but he doesn't grieve the same way at all. It's beautiful that you, you have each other in that different dynamic that mm -hmm. you each hold and then you come together. How is your relationship with Sammy now? It is evolving um, as we speak. I would say, thank God I had been on this journey already for 10 plus years when he died because I already knew that energy never dies mm. and it only changes shape. I already knew that I could connect with my loved ones who had transitioned and um, that love lives forever and that I was gonna be able to have a relationship with him. Like I, I knew that already when, when he transitioned, but I also had no desire, like I could not bring myself to connect with him directly. I could connect with him in feeling. I could feel him in the center of my heart. I could feel him. In fact, I think you told me this um, because I always felt him at my right shoulder. Mm -hmm. And you said something to me when we had a conversation several months ago that he was <laughs> on my right shoulder. Um, I, I could definitely, if I moved into the, my spiritual heart and to the center of my heart, because um, I did, and I was very open on social media and everything about this, I was doing a ton of movement and somatic experiencing and moving the energy, because I knew I, that was fundamental to my survival, that I was gonna get sick if I didn't do that. Um, and so, but as I did that, and then my vibration rose in those moments, and then it would tunnel again, but in those moments when I had the release and I could be in a moment of peace and holding and in grace, I could feel him so clearly. Um, and so I know he's there, I knew he was there, I know he's there. I would say it's only in the past two or three months that I finally feel like I'm ready to have a conversation with him. Um, I do know and I knew almost immediately that um, he, I knew that his soul, I, I believe that our souls choose when to leave. Um, I mean, not we don't, but our yeah, souls choose when completely. to leave. And I do think he, his soul felt like he's going to be, that he can be of more service where he is. And I do feel that I'm one of his helpers. Um, I'm, I'm one of his assistants. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting you say that because right before I asked you that question, you know, I'm just because I'm focusing in that way, I'm very aware of him here behind you. And, you know, the, the word that comes to me is he's become he's become a part of your spiritual backbone. Yeah. And and in a way, that's like a guardian angel energy. But the other thing that just hits me is he got so much love from your whole family, including Ethan, mm -hmm. like so much love. And uh, yeah, like that, that's a message that I kind of get Aww. from him. He just, he got so much love from all of you that the love was not missing at all. Yeah. And, and that's enough. And, and it's it, a couple things come up for me. One of the things my guides have talked about is, is they've said it's very hard when a loved one passes, the, there is usually a period of at least six months and sometimes it's a couple of years 
where you aren't necessarily going to be able to have verbal communication mm-hmm. with them, partly because of your own grief and partly because of the journey that they're on, right. where they're repositioning their relationship to the earth and their ability to have contact. Um, but I, the reason I'm so grateful to you and your husband and your whole family for what you're doing is the other aspect that I've heard the guides talk about recently, and this was in one of the conversations with the Z's books, which will be in book two. They talked about how many teenagers are here with extreme sensitivity Mm -hmm. and they don't understand the world that we are in right now, which for those of us who are in our, you know, 40s, 50s and beyond, we know that we're in the middle of this seesaw right now. The old world that we grew up in really no longer exists and you can feel it. It's still here systemically, but you can feel it's not here anymore. And then we're also not in a transformed future world. We're kind of in this middle place. So these teenagers who are coming in with this extreme sensitivity, they are here to help be a part of the consciousness change. But they very clearly said, they said, a lot of them won't make it. Yeah. And they, they, they compared it to sperm and egg. They said it takes one sperm to fertilize the egg, but lots go toward it. And they said it's the same principle. The kids are coming into seed consciousness and, 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 and wake people up. And I, I can't help but think of that when, oh, when I'm hearing he your story. He was so sensitive um, and so not open. I tried. I tried to guide him in a more spiritual fashion or even in a more mindful fashion because from the time he was a baby just sensorily yeah he was so like we would be in a show you know like a kid's show and he'd be like mommy too many people too much noise like he was so attuned and super empathetic but very um and and adults adored him and he'd even said to me not long before he died um Look, I know once I get to college and when, I know adults love me and I know I'm going to be fine when I'm an adult. And I know like he knew who he was. But at the same time, his 3D consciousness was stuck in the fact that none of his peers found any value in him, you know, and thought he was weird or annoying or they couldn't relate, you know. And um, and he he was super duper 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 smart. And I'm not saying that like smarter than mm-hmm. any of us, um, but also had learned to just be internal. So he didn't like taking classes. He didn't like learning from other people. He liked teaching himself, I think. And so he he was, especially during the pandemic, he was pretty isolated. But I know a big part of that was because it, it, the energies, he was just super sensitive to them and completely unwilling to consider in his adolescent mind where mom's an idiot, right? He was completely unwilling to explore other things that might help him understand himself better or harness his abilities or, um, you know, he just wanted to be normal and to fit in. Yeah. And so I think what you're saying is spot on. I see it. I see all these kids coming in hypersensitive. And I do see that not yet because I'm still kind of in my process of healing, but I know that part of my work and part of the work he's going to support me with and inform is helping parents parent these kids, Mm. you know, helping them get conscious about their parenting and create 
space. I mean, even now when a friend says, oh, my daughter wants to move schools because her school is really rigid and, and the kids are really mean to her, but I don't want her to move because mm -hmm. I'm worried that that'll look bad on her transcript mm -hmm. for college, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, move her, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Who gives a shit about yes. college? Yeah. You know, what you want is for her to be whole and grounded yeah. and feel supported and feel seen by you and feel an allyship with you and feel like you understand her needs and that you give her a kind of age. I mean, not willy nilly where they're, but like, you know, where you give her a kind of mindful agency. And so I feel like there's a lot there. And that's the two paradigms that we were talking about a minute mm -hmm. ago, the old paradigm we all believed college, certain, mm -hmm. certain external things, achievements were gonna keep us safe and that was how we mm -hmm. were gonna flourish in society and the new world. None of those things are true anymore mm -mm. And, and yet not enough people have had chance to grapple with right. what you just described, which is how do we support each other into wholeness and know that the rest will take care of itself. Yeah, and it's not our job to raise them in our image or right. to raise them the way we were raised or to use shame as a motivator mm -hmm. or any of the things that we intrinsically believe, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily that kind of parent, but it feels more important than ever to help parents understand that their job is to hold, to be their child's guide, not their master, mm. you know, to hold space for them, not control them. I mean, I just had to face this with my youngest getting his license his driver's license, and I was shitting a brick. <laughs> I, I mean, would, I would be the same. I, I'm like, this kid is gonna be operating a deadly machine and like driving around. Like I was so scared and I so wanted to say no. Mm. I so wanted to say no, but like, how could I do that to him? Mm. You know, I have to let him go. I have to trust. I have to let him fly. I have to let him be independent. I have to let him be in danger. Mm. I have to let him learn how to, be with danger. Which goes against all the things mm -hmm. that you did for so many years as as the as the main protector. Mm -hmm. Wow, what a what a trip. Parenting and Sammy is. taught me that too, because there is not anything we could have done to make that kid safer. Mm. I mean, we were so and my husband, especially, my nickname for him is Mr. Protector. Because from the time they were little, he was like a human, you know, buffer. Uh, and and all the way through, we, we worked so hard to be mindful and to be conscious and to be safe and to make smart decisions and to be protective, maybe more, more than we needed to at times. And none of that kept him from dying, mm. you know? And that was a really important lesson for me, huge. Yeah. Earlier, you talked about shutting down at a certain age in childhood, which I think is a story many of us mm -hmm. have and can, mm -hmm. and can look back and recognize. What age in your childhood would you say was the last time you remember being or feeling open to who you were? Probably around nine. So nine-year-old Laura can see your life today. Mm -hmm. What surprises her? Um, I think she is amazed that you can act, you know, that I can actually, I just got chills when you said that. So I feel like she's in, standing here being like, yeah. Um, she's still in here somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> she's right here. <laughs> um, yeah, no, she would be amazed that I 
because the message she got is that you're you're not going to have friends, you're you're going to be teased, you're going to be humiliated and you're crazy, right? So so then the world became really 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 scary. Mm. And I think what she would be amazed at is how not scared I am, how supported I feel, how surrendered it's possible to be um, and how fully yourself it's possible to be, mm. you know, and how easy it is to be brave from that place. Yeah. And now nine-year-old Laura, what would she be most delighted by about your life today? That I'm still a weird, kooky, playful <laughs> dork, you know? And that, and also that I've, you know, in recent years, I've gone back to art. I was very into art as a kid, um, which stopped for decades. Mm. Um, I know she really enjoyed, I mean, I feel them. I feel these different, I'm very much into parts work and inner child work. And so I would say for the past 10 years, but especially over the past couple of years, I have such a relationship with these different parts of me. And so I feel them coming forward at times when I'm painting or dancing in the yard or, um, you know, reclaiming those, those, the childlike, unabashed, playful joy that is our birthright and gets, for too many of us, conditioned out of us. See, I feel it when I'm talking to you or, you know, when I, the times we've connected over the last couple of years, I feel that energy in you. Mm -hmm. I would have gravitated to you as a kid. Mm -hmm. I'd have been in your weirdo club. Yeah, and I'd have been we like, would have oh, played. And, and, but you keep that spirit very alive. So, yeah. Laura, thank you so much for being here today. It's been really, really beautiful and powerful to have this conversation with you. And I really appreciate your openness and your, your courageous vulnerability. It's a quality I've always gravitated towards mm -hmm. in people because for me, it makes me feel safe because I know that the truth is, is, is being shared. Before we close, um, we're recording this in 2022. Uh, what are you most, and I'm asking you this intuitively, what are you most excited about between now and 2032? Oh, um. The image I keep seeing is of myself. I don't, it's a metaphor, it's not literal. A self, a, a, me spinning in a circle, throwing seeds. Mm. <laughs> and I feel like that's what I've started, been doing, but I'm kind of spiraling faster and all different gorgeous seeds. And I'm really excited to see them all flower. And not for me, they're like seeds I'm planting in other people, you know, and some in the ground, but yeah. they're seeds I'm planting in other people, if that makes sense. I love that. And I'm so I'm excited to see what the world looks like. I'm excited to be living on my little hobby farm, which is what I keep seeing with my pigs and chickens and goats, which I'm so excited about. Lord knows how and when that's gonna happen, <laughs> but it's happening. Um, I'm excited to create again, um, which I'm ready to do now and I'm starting to do and I can't wait to, you know, I know over the next 10 years that's gonna continue to evolve. Um, yeah, I'm just excited. The Z's, my guides, talk about the fact that we're here seeding consciousness mm -hmm. and we're seeding a new energy field for the planet and that's what we're doing. That's yeah. our part of the continuum of 
human life. So thank you for all you do to seed consciousness. Oh, and thank you. And, and, and really, you know, we, we started the conversation talking about the sex aspect of your work. And one of the reasons I think we're just interested in it and drawn to it and attracted to it is there is such an incredible power in that. Yes, so thank you for power. the re-empowerment work that you've been standing for, particularly at the time that we're in where, it, certainly when we were growing up, still taboo, still yeah. scary. So and thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thank you everyone for tuning in for today's Impact the World. As ever, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe or leave a rating or a review to always get the latest shows. And if you want to know more about Laura and her work, you can find everything she does over at drlauraberman.com. And as ever, we put all of the links to Laura's work in the show notes. Take care until next time. I'm thrilled to announce that we are bringing initiation back for 2022. We first held it at the end of last year and it is a channeled mystery school. Even I don't fully know what my guides will bring through in the weekly transmissions, but their intent, and this is the message they've given me, is to synchronize us with the frequencies, the information and the energies for this passage of time that we're moving through. I can attest that it was very powerful last year and we had over 5,000 people join us from all around the world. So it was an incredible container. This year, we are starting initiation on October 26th. And for those of you who would like to join us live, I will be doing weekly live broadcasts where I channel my guides for 90 minutes each time. And in between those live broadcasts, I like to deliver what I call a calibration video, where I will guide you through the energetic and psychological process that we go through. If you want to watch it, on replay, you will have lifetime access to all of the material. So whether you can join us live or not, you will get around 10 hours worth of material. This includes a welcome MP3 message from my guides all about what the initiation journey is designed to be and what you will be inviting into your life as you take this ride with us. We are also giving you our brand new album Timelines, which we have paired with the course and you will be receiving that two months ahead of everyone else. Alongside that we have self-care guides and a wonderful community forum where you can share with other members of the group what you're going through, how you're experiencing it and there is so much medicine in that community. These are always very exciting and slightly unknown events for me because in turning over to my guides as much as I'm about to I always know that we're going to go on a very shamanic journey, but it always seems to intersect perfectly with what's going on in the world at that time and what those of us who show up for the journey are bringing in and calling in for our year to come. So if initiation feels like the right call for you at the right time, we would love to welcome you. Click the link below for more details.